Welcome to Bite Side. I don't know why I decided to sing today. <laughs> I'm not going to join you if anyone, if you want anyone here for the next 30 seconds or longer, you do not want me singing. <laughs> um, this is not a karaoke podcast. This is, in fact, uh, and look, I know if it was a karaoke podcast, there's many other friends I would invite to the show, but Nick is not one of them. <laughs> He's the guy who'll be sitting in the back corner having a drink, looking furiously at everybody else until he decides it's time to sing some country music. <laughs> Do you know what I love about karaoke? It happens in licensed ven- uh, venues, and that's it. It's <laughs> the only good thing about karaoke. James Byrne, how are you? Really good. This is a show about technology and games and digital culture, by the way. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. Once again, I'm Seamus Byrne, uh, and this is Nick Healy. And we have a really good mixed bag of random fun stuff to talk about this week, I have to say. I feel like it's a strong lineup of if you've ever wondered what Biteside is about, uh, have a listen to today's discussion. Boy, you've oversold it. Boy, you have all of it. Like, again, welcome to Bite Side. <laughs> hey, oh, quickly, quickly, before we get into um, the meaty parts of today, Irish novelist John Boyne, have you read any of his work? I haven't read any of his work. How about you? No, I haven't, but I do know he does a lot of historical fiction. Uh, yeah. And his most recent book, Traveller at the Gates of Wisdom, if you were having a flick through there, you might be a little surprised by some of the stuff you found in there. Yeah. I, I, this is such a, a great little, you know, this is the internet writ large kind of a story because, <laughs> look, if you're writing historical fiction, you want to know that you have done your research. You want to throw in that smattering of of good um, you know, like good knowledge that kind of speaks to the reality of doing things. And I love that in this case, uh, you know, John Boyne was looking for a little bit of extra detail to show what it means to dye textiles <laughs> in a traditional way. And, of course, in his recipe uh, of references to do with dyeing clothes, uh, he's managed to uh, drop in two Zelda Breath of the Wild recipe ingredients. Hyrulean shroom, Hylian shroom and uh, red Lizalfoss tail. I think they're the two things he managed to throw in. Look, a little bit more actually earlier in that paragraph, he talks oh. about putting in a key swing uh, and an octorock eyeball. And one of my oh. favourite things is he's capitalised the O in octorock. So he's done enough research to know. That it deserves an uppercase O. That is, after all, yeah, of course, an octorock. I mean, it's a it's a noun. It's a proper noun. Uh, uh, look, just to be really clear here, this is historical fiction. This is not fantasy. It has no place in here at all. Spicy pepper and tail of a red lizophos or whatever. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's hilarious. But he's copped to it really impressively. He's put his hand up and said, oof, my bad. Yeah. And I love, yeah, I think his quote was literally just like, lol, this is actually kind of hilarious. I'm totally willing to own it. Something tells me I'll be telling this anecdote on stage for many years to come. (laughs) And look, I just want to throw it out there that John Boyne is a published author. This book went through a lot of hands before it got out there. And it is remarkable that at no point someone said, 
Are they actual ways that people would make a red dye historically? Yeah, and and you're right. Like usually that edit process is like that isn't just someone checking grammar and spelling. No, and it's funny because actually just today I wrote a column for uh, uh, for Media Connect uh, talking about in praise of sub editors <laughs> and how wonderful they are, and that they do more than just check your spelling. This is a case where they didn't do much more than check the spelling. I look love to know the actual process that happened here, but um, you know, I've got to say, I'm more inclined to read his books now than I ever was before. Right? I mean, you're right. There'll be a whole crowd of people who go and look up. They might, you know, they might read around this section and suddenly go, "Actually, this sounds quite interesting." And uh, you know, fingers crossed, he gets a bump in sales, and next thing, more people will be encouraged to do a nominal amount of internet research. <laughs> for their historic fiction novels in order to accidentally include some Witcher references, perhaps. Or yeah, for some, sure. Though, actually, The Witcher itself is based on, like, you know, its own historic fantasy um, in the Polish uh, tradition. So, you know, who knows? If he'd, if he'd found Witcher information about dyeing textiles, it probably would have been more accurate. <laughs> Look, all I'm going to say is if Ghost of Tsushima has taught me anything, it's that you just pick a couple of random flowers and then you get any colour you want at any point in time. Oh, that, well, that's quite fortunate. Yeah, it is very I like that. That's fortunate. a good, easy way to do that. Um, look, Nick, last time we were here, we had a week off. I hope we were well-rested. Yeah, I of course. Well rested. Yeah, yeah. Um, last time you were talking about wanting to dig into a discussion about narrative games thinking more deeply about that stuff. So I'm I'm here, I'm ready. What do you got? Look, this is a really complex one. And and I've got to admit that, you know, you you are going to hear me articulate some of these thoughts for the first time. But it all came out of The Last of Us 2. Now, just to be really clear here, I loved that game. I thought it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. Um, none of the arguments I've seen against it on the internet have held any water whatsoever. But... There are jarring moments in it where I am kicked out of some of the immersion. And, and they are often parts of what makes a game a game. Now, there's a couple of layers of this. And I'd say the, 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 the most basic layer of it. Here I am. I've been racing through to get from one section to another. Enemies are threatening everywhere. We know we're on a time budget. And yet, because of the nature of games, I'm stopping to open every drawer I can find, to scour every cupboard, to pick up every single collectible that's there, because that's what the game expects me to do. Yep. So you lose that sense of urgency there. Um, and especially when there are odd, you know, not talking about crafting materials, but collectibles. In the first game, it was the comic books. It's a series of trading cards in this game. I often think, and the one that I remember this blowing my mind when I was reviewing Alan Wake, is here is this quite, you know, on the, on the face of it, tense, clever horror game, and yet I'm supposed to go around collecting thermos flasks as I find them. And what am I doing with them? I'm yeah. just picking up all these thermos flasks. At no point does someone say, you've got 20 thermos flasks. They're just things I've collected. They've added nothing. And Alan Wake, especially, it felt like they'd been added simply because there is an expectation that a game is going to have something for you to collect. And I have to say that I did find that with the trading cards. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, cool, found a trading card. But there was no, I couldn't get a sense of why I cared about finding them. 
And to me, they were there because it's anticipated that you will find collectibles. So maybe thought that, you know, finding all the Firefly um, uh, dog tags, pendants, whatever we want to call them in the first game, kind of made more sense given your character's obsession with the Fireflies, but not Mm. this time around. So that's one layer of it. The second layer of it is that a lot of the game is about how violence breeds violence. And that is not a particularly new concept. Um, I don't even think it was necessarily done in a particularly novel way in this game, but it was done well. But there's a sense that you are supposed to be horrified by many of your actions in a game that forces you to take those actions. There's not options throughout some of the particular parts where you don't get to do what's horrific or witness what's horrific, that's baked in to the narrative. But you are supposed to then be horrified that that has occurred and that you have behaved in that manner. And that's really interesting to me. Now, uh, Brendan Keogh, who's probably uh, just one of the best writers um, academically when it comes to gaming at the moment, has actually done an essay saying a lot of this much better than me for Overland. And I'd actually hearken back to Brendan's work on... um. Spec Ops The Line, which had a very similar, your actions should destroy you, you should be horrified by what has been done, which he wrote, no other way to put it, it was almost like a treatise, it was almost a mini novel looking at that, which I think back at the time was some of the best games writing I'd ever read, some of the most important games writing I'd ever read. But the nature of these interactive games that want to tell for want of a better term, a cinematic story, is that they butt up against each other. Either you are making these decisions and you as the gamer should be questioning how this kind of came through to make these decisions. It, It should be genuinely challenging. Or you're aware that these things are just happening and they're happening no matter what you do. So you might as well just be watching a movie and have no more impact than that. And it even comes down to, you know, we often talked about, and we're going back years ago, I think we've kind of moved past a bit, but, you know, trying to find those right cinematic games. And I remember someone using the example of, you know, Luke flying over the Death Star and clipping the side of the tunnel and blowing up because he couldn't get all out of the spin and then having to do it over again and over again and over again. And even in a game like The Last of Us 2, you will die, but then you just come back. There is no consequence from that. And, of course... You know, I I get it. It is a game. It has to have some of those strictures there. But when we try and tell a story as involved, as emotionally complex as The Last of Us 2, it jars up against the elements that make a game a game. Yeah, look, man, this makes so much sense. And and it's funny. It's like it really does... Like, a lot of this discussion kind of reminds me of right now playing the Descent into Avernus Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Mm. And when you're playing through this, you know, deep setting storyline that starts from level one and goes through to, you know, the mid-teens, um, there's an element of running a game of Dungeons and Dragons where you, you know, the characters can choose to do anything because it's not even like a video game. They don't, they don't have to say yes to the first person they walk up to and something happens. They can go somewhere else if they want to. But everybody kind of agrees that, okay, we're going to play this campaign and so we'll kind of follow along. And 
after a while, there, there are sort of sections where you really kind of go, this is really on rails. It's really clear that they're being asked to now just say yes to the next thing and yes to the next thing and yes to the next thing. And it's kind of taking away some of what makes Dungeons and Dragons the fun open game it is. Now, I know there's kind of a, you know, a phase we're about to enter into where it really opens up more broadly and they can make much wider choices. But just it's it, there's definitely that element of because they're trying to give you a really epic story to explore, the nature of trying to tell a story that has a start, a middle, and an end is that you kind of need to force people down a channel. And in the like The Last of Us context, as you say, and in so many other narrative game contexts, there's that drive, like it's trying to give you that drive where it's like, you must do this thing. This is the next most important thing you have to do. Go, go, go. The music kind of speeds up even, but there is no timer. There is no actual consequence Mm. for not desperately running off to do that thing straight away. You know, in like in the tradition of the mass effects where it'll even, you know, it's like, this is incredible and we have to go and do this thing. And then there'll be a character who stands there and going, now are you sure you want to start this next section? Cause there's no going back once you start this next section. And so you go, okay, actually I'll go spend a few more weeks going around and just collecting extra stuff yeah. then. Cause I wanted to collect all the stuff. Thanks for the heads up. Uh, the big bad guy will, will wait for me for a couple of weeks then. Great. Excellent. I'll send him a memo. Rex needs his family armor back, okay? I am going to go find Rex's family armor. It's, it's well, exactly. Just a thing. You don't want him walking into certain death that may or may not be certain death, depending on how well you play. Um, you don't want him walking into that without his family armor. <clears throat> yeah, no, it just, I really, I, I completely kind of see where you're coming from on this. And yeah, in some ways, it does, and it's, it's horrible to say, but like, I, you know, in my middle age, I'm kind of feeling like choosing to play a game like Fall Guys, which has just come out this week, um, is it's like it's just about raw escapist fun in a way that it's like it's not trying to sell me more than it is, you know? And it's like it's a way to hang out with some people and have some laughs. And, and I'm like, man, I like I love these big, deep games, but also... There are those elements where it's like, if I want that kind of experience, is this the right format to get it in? And in that sense, I'm really, I am really, really looking forward to the TV series of The Last of Us because it feels like they've put great people in charge of it. And I want more stories set in that world. I don't know if I do, but that is a topic for next week, that particular one. Look, too. Uh, mostly, I'm not going to lie to you, peripheral anecdotes that I just thought of while you were chatting just then. Um, David Hollingworth, of course, ex-Atomic editor, who we both know quite well. He and I have been role-playing together since, uh, gosh, I uh, shudder to admit it, but 92, 91, I think. Um, he ran a mage campaign for us in the 90s. That David, being quite a, an excellent writer, had also put all of that skill into this campaign. And then we found a way of blowing up the main series villain in about what would have been episode three. Um, and of course, he just rolled with it because he wasn't going to try and railroad us, even though it, it was completely changing. He was yeah. interested in seeing where this would take the game. So he let us have it. And to me, that is what a tabletop role playing game can allow for that 
God help me, emergent gameplay that does take the game exactly where you thought it wouldn't go, that can be really fascinating. And a good GM, a good DM, a good storyteller, whatever you're using, they are the ones who let you roll with that. And the only other one was Mass Effect. I can't remember which one it was, but there was one of the games where if you hadn't done all your uh, companion side quests, they'd die really quickly when you went on to end game, like just stuff would happen to them. Um, And, of course, me... Uh, loving, loving Mass Effect and doing uh, all everything to completion had every single member of the Normandy survive. Whereas David, who had actually paid attention to when he was being told by the Admiral that time was urgent and he had to get this done, uh, lost nearly half the crew before he even got through into the end game. Yep. <laughs> anyway, yep. sorry, David. I know that's still too um painful that you lost Thane that way, but yeah. how it goes, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good thing. Yeah, and it's, I think it's great for people to keep in mind this whole sort of idea that, you know, you, right, it's a, a big part of it is embracing the story while also leaving a certain aspect of your, you know, your desire for storytelling to be just right at the door. Like, it's not suspension disbelief, but it's that idea of, yes, this is the game version of getting this kind of story and you just have to sort of there's that, there's an interesting middle ground that you have to embrace and look there's also it's about acknowledging the validity of a game being a great game we don't have to think of them as cinematic we don't have to go looking for the citizen cane of games yes. stop comparing them to other media games are games enjoy the fact that they are games yeah absolutely let's talk about games <laughs> Look, this uh I think this news was breaking today pretty much, but I think this is a huge uh next phase for all things, you know, game streaming services. We've been touching on them here and there. Mm-hmm. Nvidia's been playing around with the technology. Um, you know, PlayStation lets you stream from your PlayStation to other devices in your house if you want to sort of play that way. Uh Xbox Game Pass or the Xbox what do they call it? The X Cloud service. So that's Microsoft's ability to say, you know what? Um, you, we will stream the game to your devices uh, over the internet. We will do all of the core processing. And, you know, you just need the device to be able to see it on the screen and if, you know, and synchronize with an Xbox controller. And then you can play games from the whole library. It's been kind of talked about for a little while now. Um, but I think mostly I've been. Mentally picturing it in the context of, you know, still playing on a TV and that it might be that, okay, I didn't necessarily buy, you know, the latest Xbox, but I can now stream the latest games by paying a subscription. And it really seems like this launch today is the idea that Xbox Game Pass is going to be available on Android and iOS and you will be able to, through an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, which makes 100 games available every month on a regular basis. Some kind of, you know, some games will fall off the service, some will slide in, uh, depending on what's around, but heaps of great games are on that, that this subscription service will now mean you can synchronize your Xbox controller to your iPhone, your iPad, your Android tablet, your, you know, latest phones, and you will be able to play the latest Xbox games on any device, wherever you happen to be. This is really interesting. That is wild. Look, it is going to depend on how it goes. With anything like this, the minute you get a bit of lag, a bit of latency, that can be a major problem. But uh, when was it? 20... 
13, Xbox One Smart Glass. They were looking at companion apps for the Xbox One. Do you remember that? Do you remember the uh, Smart yeah. Glass companion app? Yeah. And it, it like... You know, like I used it a few times. I remember I, I couldn't I, work out what I was meant to do with it, to be perfectly yeah. honest. There I'm just like, seemed to be no functionality. Games I did, yeah. <laughs> but it seems um, like they have taken some learnings from that. Yeah. And look, I just, I double checked. It's not going to be on iOS at launch. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that all kind of turns out over time. But absolutely, it's going to be on Android. Um, I think, you know, the Xbox Game Pass Ultimate is what I think you pay, like, what, about 150 bucks a year or something like that. It's like, it's, yeah. it's priced higher than the old Xbox Gold service. And some people had actually noticed that the Gold services have started to be no longer available for renewal or like, or buying a, you know, like a, a card in a store if you want to get it that way. So it seems like the focus really is now going Ultimate is essentially going to be their whole subscription concept. Um, the, the thing that really hits me is like, if this works in the way that means I can continue playing the game that I'm playing at home on my Xbox in that way that, you know, like there's so many games that will have, you know, there is the going out there and doing all the huge stuff. And then there's the, yeah, on my like train ride to Sydney, I just want to like do the, Bank management bits. I want to, yeah, my inventory, maintain my armor, craft some bullets, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, the wandering around town and just preparing for the next big mission. It's like that kind of stuff would be so good. Um, they've said it's going to launch in twenty-two countries at launch. Uh, I know the list on the Verge doesn't include Australia, but I'm pretty sure I heard something um, for Australia. So I'm like, I'm not. Yeah, anyway, I don't see it right there right now. But I just think. It was so like it's so much more than I expected to get at this point. The big thing though that you were talking about about latency and things is of course I feel like this is the perfect time for this to launch just ahead of when we're all actually kind of getting onto the 5G networks because ah. this is that that's exactly the kind of thing that 5G is designed to do well is low latency, high bandwidth so that this those kinds of classic issues where, yeah, streaming something in this kind of a way is going to have less of those problems. Um, and again, it's like, yep, for the first little while, a lot of people are going to go, oh, it's not quite as good as I thought it was going to be. But it actually then is a selling point for the networks to go, this really does work better if you're on 5G. It's actually, and you would be able to demo that in a shop. To be able to say, look, here's the 4G device, here's the 5G device, play them side by side and see how it feels. I really feel like this is one of those things where you will visibly, demonstrably be able to see what it means to have the low latency in particular of 5G. That's one of those things that's really going to stand out. And, of course, the other thing is we've talked a few times about how the... um the telcos and the service providers are positioning themselves with the gaming companies. I mean, at the moment, I'm signed up to Telstra, my my phone provider, for all the info about the Xbox X. And I find that really interesting that they are tying themselves together. So I think you're right. I think this is exactly where we could see some 5G collaboration on. That's a great point. I'd kind of forgotten about that, that you can get an Xbox on a plan from Telstra mm-hmm. and that plan includes your Xbox uh, Game Pass Ultimate price. Like, so, I mean, this is a total 
combo opportunity uh, for the two of those to do some huge uh, sales pitches around this as it, you know, as it kicks off in, I mean, literally in coming weeks. It's like this is going to launch next month. Um, maybe part of why they haven't said Australia is it might be that they're holding it back to let Telstra essentially make a big splash about this coming exclusively to Telstra or something like that. Um, but yeah, really, really cool stuff. I'm excited to be able to do this kind of thing. Like, you know, in the picture I've seen, yeah, Minecraft Dungeons is listed on there. That is totally the kind of game that I think would be a really fun thing to play, you know, to waste time with on like a train or something in a way that is so much more fun than many, many, many mobile games that are out there. And like, again, being able to think, well, I just sling an Xbox controller I already own in my bag. I just sync it to the device and that's it. I'm now playing totally legit Xbox games. I mean, I couldn't do it from on the train from here to Sydney because there are so many dead spots in the network. <laughs> it really would give up. Um, but the long-term potential for this, I'm excited to see it actually kind of going, we are launching this. It's no longer just the, well, we're testing it in three territories and, uh, you know, one day you might demo it or like the demo sessions Telstra has done sometimes to go, look, esports on 5G is really great because, you you know, low latency, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's great, but I'm not going to go to, you know, your special test location to play an esport for half an hour. But this kind of starts to really sell me on, on. And, you know, the other big story about 5G in this relationship is things like um, I've, you know, spoken to other people who work in virtual reality and stuff saying they're really sold on the idea that uh, you will be able to, like that essentially the really good versions of augmented reality glasses are going to come thanks to 5G because this kind of offloaded processing can be sent to the cloud. It means it will do the real-time processing without you needing the bulky com computation device sitting on you. You know, your phone can kind of manage just the back and forth um, or even a chip in, you know, in a pair of glasses and you start to kind of open up all these things that the bulk of these devices currently makes too hard to do because you have to have the processing local. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited and I'm sure it's going to be, you know, a big thing come Christmas time. Look, I'm excited too. I'm just going to temper all of that with, if you cast your mind back to the Xbox One, one of the things Don Matrick was constantly saying is that there would be that cloud-based processing, that when you fired up an Xbox One, there were 10 others somewhere else that were contributing their processing power. I don't think that ever got actually evidenced in any meaningful way if you were using it so just um you know i love the enthusiasm personally i'm going to pump the brakes a little until yeah. i actually see how this all comes together look look that's a great point and the one thing i'll add to that is you know since the launch of the xbox one microsoft has thankfully become a cloud technology company rather than being <laughs> a you know like you know, Barmer is no longer in charge. Nadella is in charge, and he made that company turn into you know a, a cloud computing juggernaut. So there is that at least <laughs> to back up the new new version of that idea. Wait, one hundred percent. And you know what? I wasn't factoring that in. Look, let's do a couple of quick hints yeah. before we get out of here. What's hot for you? Are you as you're not as much of a horror fan as I am? Are you? 
I I know I, I love horror, but I do not get to watch it very much because my wife absolutely hates it. And <laughs> you know, carving out time, you you can't even let someone else hear horror in the same no, building not. if how, they don't like it. How could you? Um, look. What we've all needed, obviously, is a brand new streaming service. I don't think we've had enough of those this year. There is a new one coming out. So Shudder, which is the on-demand service, pretty much exclusively for horror, bit of suspense, bit of thriller, it is coming to Australia. We're still waiting for a few details. You can actually sign up to say, I'm really interested in this. Uh, And now, yeah, again, Pumping the brakes. It was scheduled to launch in 2018. It has certainly been delayed, but the theory is that it is coming soon. And uh, a lot of film buffs who I know on uh, social media, very, very excited about it. So I'm keen. Hopefully what it's going to do is open up a lot of that international horror, which doesn't always make it to our streaming services. So really, really keen to see what comes out. Keep an eye on it. If, like me, you love a bit of horror, what have you been interested in? Um, the, uh, another tip, well, this one's an actual tip. You can actually go and watch actually right oh, now. Fine, fine. Um, the Speed Cubers has just popped up on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet, but I did watch the trailer when it, I saw it pop up because I'm like, hey, there's a Rubik's Cube on the picture of this new documentary. I'm keen. What's it all about? The, uh, the trailer looks amazing. And like all of the reports I've heard from other people is brilliant. It is all about that competitive world of speed cubing people trying to kind of set new records and all the like crazy algorithm stuff that people get in their head to be able to do this. Um, so it is, but ultimately it kind of reminds me from the trailer of the King of Kong in that sort of classic sense of, you know, people who are in love with this old school kind of retro way of competing against each other, except in the way that the, you know, the King of Kong is all about a really deep rivalry that almost becomes like a good versus evil story. Um, this is about rivalry that becomes friendship. And and in that sense, it looks lovely. And one of the two uh, people is an Australian, uh, oh. Felix Zemdegs, uh, who apparently is like one of the all-time, you know, kings of speed cubing, which wow. I had not realised. And now I'm like going, damn, I wish I'd gotten a hold of this guy for an interview just for fun before he became famous through this because now he'll actually, you know, be harder to get a hold of, I'm sure. Oh, wow. um, but his friendship with a another uh, younger speed cuber who is also uh, autistic and becomes like, you know, one of these kinds of super new people on the scene um, and, yeah, just how they develop this really great friendship. And it just, like, while being, of course, rivals trying to kind of break records um, in this whole scene. So it just looks like a really lovely doco about that idea of like loving competition, wanting to be the best, but also at the same time finding friendship through those rivalries rather than feeling like you have to hate each other. So it looks great. I'm going to track it down. You've sold me. Excellent. Let's wrap this thing up. Nick. Where can people find all your stuff? Still track me down on uh, Twitter is the best place to do it. It is at DR underscore NIC. But if you've got the ABC Listen app, you can hear me doing breakfast on the ABC Western Plains station, channel, website. ABC Western Plains, I do breakfast there. It would have been the best way of doing that. And you can find that on the ABC Listen app. There we go. Excellent. <laughs> um, I'm at Seamus. On the Twitter, uh, you can find all our stuff via ByteSide in most places or the ByteSide on Instagram because someone snuck in in the around 2000 and 
two and grabbed it. Um, so that's our, that's our bad luck. Um, ask at biteside.com. Oh, by the way, and that person on at biteside on Instagram mm. haven't posted basically. They posted three times. Gosh, and they dang just it. sat on it. One day. Gosh, one dang day, it. Email us, ask at biteside.com if you've got any cool tips or ideas or thoughts or theories on all the things we've been talking about. And we will catch you again real soon. Beep, beep, beep.